Patient No Longer is a podcast featuring leaders in healthcare who are inspiring a positive shift in the customer experience and human understanding. In this podcast, we interview people who are from all areas of healthcare that are impacting the healthcare consumer journey of care. My name is Ryan Donahue, solutions expert and strategic advisor with NRC Health. And it's a pleasure to host Patient No Longer, a podcast in search of what's new, what's next, and what makes healthcare human again. Welcome back everyone to another episode of Patient No Longer, the podcast attempting to rehumanize healthcare one episode at a time. And I am your host, Ryan Donahue. I am joined by a intriguing guest today, and that's Sara Vaezi. Hi, Sara. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on, Sara, and you've got a great list of credentials. You are Chief Strategy and Digital Officer at Providence Health. You're also on the board of NCQA, Board Observer for DexCare, and a Health Evolution Forum Fellow. All of those in interest pale to the fact that you're also co-founder of the Seattle Sauce Company. I'm talking to you, Sara, because Providence Health is a great partner of NRC Health. We've worked together a lot on governance, consumerism, patient experience, and you guys do some fantastic work. You're changing a lot of healthcare on the West Coast and throughout the United States. But I want to ask you a question about something you wrote first, which caught my eye, and that was about the flywheel and its application to healthcare. Not everyone knows the flywheel. I'm a huge fan from the Jim Collins Good to Great book and that reference. But can you describe the flywheel concept and how you think of it in the context of healthcare? Absolutely. And I think I'll knit together a couple of different concepts, both the flywheel in the context of healthcare, but also in the context of digital and how digital can support and enable a flywheel. And so for folks that are not familiar with the concept of a flywheel, you know, you referenced Good to Great, which is one of my favorite kind of management books out there. You know, if we think about the flywheel, it's any great company, when you look at their success, They have one sort of centered around a key, what they call a hedgehog concept. And the hedgehog concept is the one thing that they know that they can be best at. And then when you start to operationalize the concept of the hedgehog, you have to put a bunch of pieces together. And those bunch of pieces are an internally coherent story about what you're trying to accomplish. And it doesn't happen overnight, right? You keep turning the crank, you keep turning the crank, and eventually it sort of takes off. The flywheel takes off and it becomes this unstoppable force with all of the pieces sort of mutually reinforcing one another. And if you look back, you know, Jim Collins in his book says, you can't point to one single turn of the flywheel that got it to take on this unstoppable force. It's all cumulative based on the nature of the different pieces coming together. So now if we think about it from a consumer lens and we think about it from a digital flywheel perspective or, you know, the flywheel within the consumer orientation, it's about that experience and the different elements of how you knit together that experience that keep a customer coming back over and over. And instead of constantly paying to reacquire them, for instance, you're really the place that they return to because you provide such outsized value to them as a user. And that's what we focused on from a consumer digital flywheel perspective is what does it take to create an engagement model that gets consumers to come back over and over? 
Well, you're already talking about consumers, which I think is really important there because a lot of times management techniques and concepts, we take them into our organization and it becomes the vacuum. And we start to say, how does this affect all of us? And then we'll go out and present that product or service to our consumers or our patients in healthcare. And we have to include them in that process. And I'm a good to great fan as well. It is one of the few books that a manager handed me and said, read this. And I actually did. You know, one of the things that you've done in some of your content that you've put out there, and you've been on podcasts and written articles and posted things on LinkedIn, but you talk about some of these really interesting concepts that are outside of healthcare. But give me a shining star, a company that's out there that's not in healthcare right now that a healthcare leader should be paying attention to. When we talk about flywheels in other industries, I have two examples, one that we've written about in the past, which is Starbucks, and a new one, which I'll talk about in just a second. Starbucks is a bit cheating because, of course, like buying coffee every day is a little bit of a different thing than purchasing healthcare episodically, right? And that's actually a key part of this, which is that we need to go from episodic to more continuous. But you know, Starbucks has done this brilliant thing with digital as a chassis for it. And so they have their mobile experience and you can actually access it on all of their different digital channels. But mobile is a very, you know, easily portable kind of experience that they have. That's the home for where you can purchase or pay for your coffee. They also have it as the home for their gift cards and reloading your account. And what that allows them to do is to, you know, they know who you are, they can target incremental benefits to you, like stars programs and free drinks on your birthday and the ability to pay in the moment, which is, you know, just valuable because it's frictionless and seamless and so on and so forth. But the other beauty of it is they've taken that and built a whole business model around it. So Starbucks in a very short amount of time, I think it was one quarter last year in 2021 sold $3 billion worth of gift cards. That's extraordinary. And for each of those, they save on transactional costs, right? They basically behave as a bank. They save on the transactional costs in terms of how they process transactions because they own that money. And then that's what they're using to fuel the ability to give you free drinks and stars programs and money off of your snack or whatever. And that just is like this mutually reinforcing thing, right? And it's this beautiful flywheel that keeps you coming back. And because they've connected it to the business model, it makes it sustainable for them to deliver on that on an ongoing basis. Another one is actually Twilio. And that's one we haven't written about in the past or talked much about. But what Twilio did was they took this really complex concept of like, how do organizations differentiate around the way that they communicate with customers or their own employees or whatever, right? How do they have this communication program? And in the past, prior to Twilio, it was like you needed coders and you needed all of this like very, you know, you needed engineers to create a whole platform for you because it was important. Or you just had this like very out of the box, undifferentiated experience. And Twilio, through their APIs, has created the ability to buy from an enterprise perspective. You can buy, but still differentiate your experience through APIs. And so they've created this beautiful flywheel where their consumers keep coming back for more, these enterprise customers that they have, because they are able to build differentiated experiences on a platform that they don't have to own forever. And there's not that ongoing cost to them. So those are two of my favorite examples of just like cracking a simple, both 
experience and economic puzzle for your user that then is this ongoing flywheel that keeps people coming back. You've got to crank the flywheel and you've got to keep it going through these movements. And those early movements are really important. And I feel like as an industry, sometimes we crank and then something stops us and we crank and something stops us. We're putting in a lot of work, but we're not getting the momentum to be built. I love your example on Starbucks. I have to confess this to a Seattleite here that I am not a card sharing member. And I went through the drive-thru the other day and they're all throwing out their phone to scan and I didn't have mine. And I felt like the kid who forgot his backpack at school. So they've done a fantastic job building that ecosystem. And and I'm going to check out Twilio more as well. I've not heard of them. I want to showcase a client of ours who's done something interesting and then kind of frame that up to you. Baycare in the Tampa area in Florida has built an easy pass. And Ed Ralfowski, their chief marketing officer, will tell you he never thought he'd be able to like trademark easy pass as a phrase in healthcare. Like surely someone's done it. No one had. This was five years ago. And they built this sort of loyalty program in healthcare. They started small with a couple of primary care offices, but we had him on patient no longer last year to talk about this. And they finally through a lot of work and Ed being a champion of this, they've said, Hey, like we need to expand this to all of primary care. And they're getting fantastic results. They've turned it into a communication tool, a scheduling tool, even a feedback tool. And I love that. I've shared the podium with Ed and, and other people come up and they're like, I'll just never be able to get that done at my health system. And I'm sure there's people maybe even listening to some of your examples saying, oh, I wish we could do that here. And that's a tough thing to overcome. But what's your advice on people who've kind of started to get some things going and maybe it's timed out and they want to do some things that are innovative like you're doing? What's some advice you'd give them to try to carry that forward into healthcare? Well, I love the Baycare example. And there are just a very small handful of health systems that have achieved this. One of the things that Baycare did, and I'm not too familiar with their program, but I know a little bit, right? They're not in our markets. So I'm kind of commenting from the cheap seats here. <laughs> when you sign up for EasyPass, they actually require you to put in your email address. And that is the first step to getting to know you, right? And so I think from a customer experience, like a piece of advice that I would give folks that are trying to do this is ensure that you can get to know your customers and have that experience be rooted in the individual. And then over time, you can start to learn what their needs are, what their preferences are, what their intent and motivation is. And that will help fuel for you the relevance of the things that you serve up to them so that they have utility, that they're not just going to be these things that you think are valuable to them, but they're actually rooted in what you know about the individual. And so starting with just get to know your patients, right? Like, or your consumers, that's step one. And then build sort of progressive, authenticated experiences based on what you know about people and go from there. One of the reasons why it's so difficult for us as systems is we are stuck in many cases from an economic standpoint to deliver on these programs, you know? And so we need to think about these, not just as a loosely integrated set of services or experiences, but actually a whole economic model that you need to integrate the different pieces of. And so whether you see it across the continuum so that it connected to a business model that powers not just whether you get people into your hospitals or not, but really a whole kind of experience around 
how new customer acquisition ties to getting them to utilize services that are high value, that are relevant to them, to perhaps getting, you know, hospital services in the right location at the right time, et cetera, like connect that whole experience from a business model standpoint. I think that's the other thing to solve for relatively immediately and do it on a small scale, right? And then expand from there. I think a lot of the issues that we deal with in healthcare are we talk about it a lot within our system is their transition economics issues. And the reason for that is that historically, we've been so acute focused that that's been our traditional resource engine. And that's going to change over time. And we need to very deliberately think about how we manage that. So start thinking about the business model across an integrated continuum early in the process. And then the last thing I'll say is get clinicians and, you know, especially your doctors involved early and explain to them what the sort of rationale for this is, because they can be champions, right? If they understand it, if they don't understand it, then that's going to be really difficult to do. They're very analytical, they're data-driven people, and they'll fight it because they won't really understand unless you spend the time to, to engage them up front. I was just going to ask you about physicians next, but you answered it. And it's funny, we could go full circle with Baycare because some of the early opponents of the Easy Pass, as you may know, were the physicians saying, hold on, you want to start where? Primary care? And one of the things that Ed Rolfowski did was he showed them how positive a lot of their patient interactions are and how strong the physician-patient bond is through the CGCAPS data they gather, which they were just yep. at that time posting and turning into ratings and converting into reviews that people could see. And a lot of physicians hadn't even seen some of that data. They just weren't included in that process. So if I'm a doctor and I have had a lot of things come my way that haven't been positive. And so any new thing, you have your defenses up. And I'm curious just to dig in that a touch more. Any other techniques or tips that you would share on not just having them be early champions? I love that. But other things to do to work through the quote unquote barrier of physicians? So I'd say two things that we've done that have seemed to work and we're still learning from them. The first is to start small and we don't do any technology thing that we roll out. We don't roll it out at 100% of users right away, right? We start small, we test, but then we don't let it languish, right? So, you know, there's like this term like pilotitis that folks have seen where it just languishes without an end and partly because there are no sort of defined KPIs or anything like that. We don't let that happen. It's because, you know, the power of technology especially is that you can test and get results really quickly and then you can iterate, you can continue to collect feedback and data and understand behaviors within the context of what you're trying to do, et cetera. So do that. And then this goes without saying that you've engaged the providers early on, right? The other piece of engagement with providers that I think is important is to work with them to say the experience may not be better right away. And that willing group of participants needs to go into it knowing like things may actually be tough for a little while or even tougher, right? And that's a hard thing to swallow, especially these days while providers have gone through three years of managing COVID and all this stuff. But you have to go into it transparently with them to say either like we don't know or and we're, we're going to have to see what happens or it may actually get worse. And we're going to track the data. We've instrumented everything so we can track the data. We'll stay in touch with you and then we can adjust along the way. And so those are two of the things that have worked well for us. And we are continuing to 
refine. I'll give one example. So we've got a body of work that we're building essentially a conversation and navigation platform, which today surfaces up in the form of a chatbot. And her name is Grace. And Grace lives on our digital properties in a variety of different places, above and below the login on our own websites, within the context of our mobile experience, which is the Providence app, as well as above and below the login in MyChart. That was a huge undertaking. We worked really closely with our IS partners on getting that done. And one of the key use cases, especially within the context of like where it lives with above and below the login on my chart, was to mitigate the huge volume increases that we had with in-basket messages since we've now trained folks to come online with us. And with COVID, folks are much more digitally enabled. So we had a huge increase in the number of in-basket messages our providers were receiving. And so we started a really small test with them where we put the bot, the bot would sort of ask folks in a progressive way, hey, like, what are your issues? Like, how can I help you? And we did it with like two clinics, right? Just a handful of docs. And then it started to work and we started seeing early results. And so now we're expanding it and we are doing it with a much larger number of providers in our Puget Sound region. So that was one example. And our providers have been coming along with us along the way. And we told them, we don't know what's going to happen, right? When we put my chart, Grace, above and below the login on my chart, we don't know. But when we started to see some early data, we were able to take it to them. And again, they were able to really engage around it. Yeah, you've really kept them as partners and kind of gone shoulder to shoulder through the journey. And I think that that's a really good point you make about you're not overpromising, you're being transparent. I think sometimes when we get a really hot start, you know, we're at the very beginning cranking the flywheel. That happens all the time. You know, we'll go to a conference and sit with clients who say, we're going to kick this off and it's really exciting. And you're not talking about the barriers or the disadvantages or the pitfalls you might hit. And, you know, we'll come back the next year to that conference and say, how did it go? And they're like, oh, that, uh, you know, it petered off in three months or six months or a year or whatever. And there weren't KPIs and we were languishing. And now we're trying to start back up and spend this energy. And I think a lot of physicians would have said they've seen a lot of that come and go. Yep. And so rightfully, they're thinking about it from a different perspective. The other thing I want to ask you about, because I like how effortlessly you talk about digital, but you talk about it in context of patients and consumers. Something that I notice a lot when we're as health systems or more standalone hospitals talking about digital, we tend to put it on an island. And my friend Chris Bevelo writes about this in one of his Joe Public books that it's like we need a speaker for consumerism and a speaker for digital. And then we're going to meet as a board and talk about what we want to do. And I wonder if sometimes we're doing the wrong thing there by not including digital and feathering it in to everything that we're doing. Have you run into that issue in your experience? And if so, have you found ways to better integrate digital into everything that Providence does? Yes, definitely. And, you know, I think the question is, like, what are you actually trying to accomplish with digital? We got very focused and clear about what we're trying to do with digital, and therefore it informs how we are integrating with the rest of the system. So. In many other non-digitally native industries, the first place where consumer, especially consumer, digital transformation occurred was around demand generation, demand aggregation, and demand capture. 
that's where when the travel industry made its big transformation and companies like Expedia popped up, you know, that's what happened. That's the domain where digital had its real moment, I would say. And in many other industries, we see that as well. So if you're going to do that, you absolutely have to be deeply integrated into the core of your organization because it is foundational to how things operate. If your goal is to sort of incubate point solutions and build small companies that might solve for a very specific need, you don't necessarily have to be super deeply integrated into the entire enterprise, right? And so I think it's partly like, what are you there for? What are you trying to accomplish? And what are you driving toward? If we think about the Clayton Christensen types of models, he really talked about, well, you really got to separate it to some extent so that it can run independently. And I think it depends, right? We just have to be a little bit more sophisticated as to like, what domain is it that we're specifically talking about? What's the desired outcome? And if we want to be truly innovative from like a new company creation standpoint, yes, probably. And certain new companies, I should say, because we have an incubation model that is deeply integrated into the core, but it's because it gets to that fundamental, like driving growth via digital through this whole from discovery through engagement journey. And that you just can't divest it from the core activities of a health system. We have one really clear example of how this played out in the early stages of COVID. You know, we all had this like sort of, in a way, like myth that we were thinking that we, or maybe like a false view of the world where we said, either you run fast or you're deeply integrated into the core. And what we learned at the beginning of COVID was like when you're working hand in hand, between operators, clinicians, and digital, that's when you run the fastest. And we were able to build our first version of our chatbot within a matter of days when COVID started, because we were doing, you know, multiple times per day standups and frequent releases, and we were getting a lot of data from the field and iterating really, really quickly. And that was a very core activity, you know, in terms of understanding what our markets were experiencing, what people were experiencing in terms of symptoms and how they needed to kind of progress through their journey. So that was an example where we busted that myth very definitively because we were working so closely as a triad technology ops and clinical. And so I think it kind of gets to like, what are you trying to do? How are you trying to do it? And each model has its own place, but for the types of things that we're trying to do, we have to work hand in hand. It's so true. I mean, there was intense collaboration. If There was no choice but to collaborate intensely during COVID. And I think it's interesting because a lot of people found how they were not weaving some of those things deeply into the core, as you would say, and what happened. And, you know, we both know uh, Dr. Steve Plasco, recently retired as CEO of Jefferson Health and co-author of Patient No Longer, the book with me. But he talked about how he stood up Jeff Connect, which is their telehealth platform in 2015, spent a lot of money. People said, you don't need to be doing this. And then they had very little bandwidth issues in the spring of 2020 and, and had a fantastic response because they built it out and they integrated it and they made it part of what they do. I'm interested to know, because I'm starting to hear this toward the end of 2022, that, you know, we collaborated technology, you know, it's like we did a decade worth of innovation in a, in a couple months in 2020, and it really brought healthcare up to speed in some cases on virtual care and telehealth appointments. But of course, those have dropped off now in a way because, you know, it depends on the market on how much, but just that people have returned to more normal patterns of healthcare along with the rest of life. 
But what do you see going forward? Because I'm seeing some people saying, you know, that's all kind of calmed back down as if, you know, we're going back to 2019. I don't really think that's the case, but I'm curious with how close you are to digital healthcare. What do you see that COVID boom becoming in 2023, 2024, 2025? What does it look like to you? Those folks are not necessarily wrong. The folks that say, oh, you know, that was a passing thing. The data around virtual visit utilization, for instance, shows that national averages were above 50% in terms of virtual visit utilization for ambulatory care. And then they've declined back to low double digits, perhaps even single digits across the country. But we really need to examine like, Why is that, right? So that data doesn't necessarily, it's not lying to us, but the root cause of it and what it means for the future are things that we need to spend some time on. So part of it is that, you know, we didn't make any other operational or experience related transformations along the way. That was a time of great emergency. And we just scrapped whatever we could together. And it was like duct tape and... (laughs) just getting it up and running, right? But the experience didn't necessarily improve. And for many of our clinicians, it actually worsened. It lowered their efficiency. It changed the way that they get compensated in a negative way. And so, and then it didn't, from a consumer standpoint, yes, there's some incremental benefit of not having to leave your home, but it didn't do much else, right? So in other words, we just took a physical visit and swapped it out for a a virtual visit, which in some ways actually provides less data, less good experience. And so folks kind of revert to what was working for them before. And I think that's natural, right? But what it means for the future, I think, is something worth spending more time on in that we did this transformation. The experience is not optimal for any party involved. But now we have this workforce crisis that has accelerated by 10, 20 years what we thought was coming and we would have time to manage and now we don't. The math is never going to pencil out, right, in terms of how much care folks are going to need and the amount of people we have to deliver that care. So digitally enabling care and all of the things that surround it in order to even just solve that math problem is something that we can't deny. Mm -hmm. And we're going to have to do it. And so perhaps the reason for it is different. It's a different kind of emergency, right? It's not a global pandemic type of emergency. It is now a workforce emergency. I think this is going to be a bit of a longer pull in terms of making that transformation, but it's going to also be more sustainable because we're going to have to do the things that we weren't able to do the first time around. And so instead of duct tape, we need concrete or something, (laughs) you know, we're going to be working toward that, but we're never going to go back to the way things were in 2019. And it's not a sign that consumers don't want digital or providers don't want digital. It's just that the conditions around which we operate need to also be adjusted. Our national NRC health results in the Market Insights survey showed it crossed over 50% of telehealth usage in June 2020. And that was the highest it had been since we'd asked the question starting at the Great Recession. And it's come way back down and it depends on the market. But one other stat that I would throw out to support what you're saying we ask consumers, which areas of healthcare are you excited to use? Now, excitement is not often a word that a would-be patient uses, 
Telehealth is the highest level of excitement. 55% of consumers across the country are excited to have some sort of virtual visit in the future. And a lot of them, you know, they have that experience under their belt. It's not something they're going to easily forget. I want to ask you about the strategy side of things. We're working on our 2023 trends report. A lot of people are asking these questions. What are some strategic things that you think health systems need to focus on? Workforce is in their face. The financial constraints are real. We've had several guests talk about the pain of trying to push through during these times. But from a strategic point of view, are there opportunities? Are there other things that we might be missing that we should be considering across healthcare? If you were to talk to our CEO, Rod Hockman, he would say three things. The first is deconstruction. So when we say deconstruction, it can mean a lot of different things, but it's really thinking about our business in terms of defined services that we know we can do well and things that maybe it's better to work with a partner on, right? And so this kind of gets back to good to great and what are we really good at and and how do we think about our business in sort of this organized fashion such that, again, it's not just like a loose collection of a variety of services, but it's the things that we can be really good at and the things that we need to partner with others to deliver and, and serve our communities. So deconstruction, that's number one. Number two is diversification. Diversification is something that health systems have been thinking about for quite some time, but we need to get much more systematic as an industry and especially as a sector around it, given that care delivery economics are going to continue to erode for the foreseeable future. You know, given the workforce challenges that we have, given the inflation pressures, given the fact that whether or not we are heading into an another recession or not, the economic conditions are not in favor of care delivery, not working in favor of care delivery. So we have to grow into other businesses and creative new business models. So diversification is the second one. And then the third piece is digitization. So whether that's consumer digital transformation, like the things that my team does, or digitization of the kind of core infrastructure of a system, all of those things that help to shift the economics again, make us much more, you know, variableize our expenses, make us much more efficient. That's another big priority. So those are like the three, that's like the triad in terms of what we're focused on, diversify, deconstruct, and digitize. The 3D, right? I mean, Rod should be like, I don't know if he fully penned that himself, but I think there's like a new system of learning that he's working on there. You did a fantastic job speaking to it. I think that that's so important that we're considering the opportunities here too. Maybe the fourth D that we don't want to include is being defensive. I feel like we've been very defensive and said, you know, what can we hold on to? What can we claw back? And frankly, that's not a great strategy, especially with the other innovators there. When we see some of the newcomers and you've got Walmart and CVS Aetna and all these other folks, what do you think is an area of digital where perhaps a health system has an opportunity to get in. It seems similar to the flywheel or, or innovation where we say, oh, those companies are so big, you know, we're just going to have to try to trudge through what we do in our business model. Because those companies, a lot of them have struggled on the flywheel, right, to get going. It seems like every year for the last 20 years, Walmart was going to finally get into healthcare and change healthcare. Is there an area of digital where you think a health system could be thinking about that diversification piece and maybe get out ahead of some of these other companies that are coming in? I think the unique opportunity that health systems have 
is around identity-driven engagement. You know, Providence, for instance, has, we have a promise to our communities that is know me, care for me, ease my way. And that know me piece is beyond important. (laughs) And everyone tries to do it, right? Like Walgreens tries to do it through their Walgreens rewards program. And Walmart tries to do it through, you know, Walmart plus and Amazon tries to do it through Amazon prime, you know, all of these Mm -hmm. folks try to do it, but we have access to the clinical connection and the clinical data and we're able to then create an identity-driven engagement ecosystem that taps into that clinical data, but also pulls in the relevant partners and can bring in truly contextually relevant personalized experiences to healthcare consumers that nobody else can. That is the one thing that we are better positioned to do than others. You know, the rest of them, one, they only cover slivers number one, with the exception of perhaps Optum, we could have a whole session around that, but they provide slivers. And then secondly, you know, many of them are publicly traded for-profit organizations that only go after the high margin services. They're very selective about what businesses they go into. We don't, and we're not selective. We serve everybody. And therefore we have a wealth of that kind of know me platform under our belts. And so I think that's the one area where health systems have a distinct advantage. Now we haven't leveraged that necessarily in the context of like, okay, well then what products and services do you build on top of that to create this flywheel? And that's the next phase of what we're working on. That's so true. You've got these people right in front of you that they're waiting for you to engage them, not other companies, not a sliver, the whole journey. They're waiting for you as a health system or even a hospital or even a doctor's office to do it. And, you know, we've had fee-for-service and we haven't necessarily had to move all that quickly. And and we don't have to do some things we don't want to, but that's changing. And I think you make a really good point about it being an opportunity for us in a shifting landscape to finally truly get to know these people and use it as an, an ally and a bulwark against other competition that's emerging. I usually ask two last-minute questions. I usually ask one. I'm going to ask you two questions, Sarah. Okay. What is Seattle Sauce Company? Seattle Sauce Company is a small family-run hot sauce business that that we have that was birthed out of just wanting to eat really good hot sauce and turned into uh, making hot sauce and selling it. So if folks are interested, they can go to yaboysauce.com and I'll connect it to healthcare by saying it's a health food. It's great for you. There's no chemicals and it makes everything taste good. Okay, last question for you. You've had a great history in healthcare already. You're at a fantastic organization making a lot of difference. I think a lot of people listening to this want to do the same sort of things. Imagine you step into an elevator with someone who is on day one of their healthcare career. They are just starting out. What is a piece of advice that you would give to them on that elevator ride? What I would say is enter into healthcare with humility and acceptance of the complexity of healthcare. So get deep on the problems and try to leave the hubris at the door in terms of, oh, you know, we can, especially a lot of technology folks to say, oh, we can solve all problems with technology. So enter into it with humility and really get deep on the problems 
but try to leave the baggage associated with healthcare, having tackled problems and not been able to solve them, like leave it, forget about it. There's always a way to address the problem. So try to remember that you will get in the trough of disillusionment and it's really important for you to just keep fighting through and just leave the baggage at the door. Well, Sarah, that's fantastic. Leave the baggage outside the elevator and you'll go a lot further, right? Without that weighing you down. Well, you're doing fantastic things. It was great to talk through some of these concepts with you, strategy, digital, and really, again, keeping it all connected to the consumer. Without them, we never get that flywheel started. I just want to thank you so much for your time with us today. Thank you. It was a great conversation and I really enjoyed it. Wonderful. Well, thank you everyone for listening. We will catch you again on the next episode of Patient No Longer.